0: Thank you, each and every one, and and uh, I think we're we're at capacity. But if not, you know, we pray for those who are yet still on the journey. Um, in uh, lifting up today's uh, um, discussion, lecture, presentation, I wanted to share with you as our centering moment for this morning uh, a prayer, a prayer written by W. B. Du Bois, not necessarily known as the most uh, religious or um, holiest of figures, but hopefully by the end of uh, this morning's conversation, a little bit of that'll change for you. Um, This uh, prayer is one of many collected in a volume known as uh, Prayer for Dark People. Um, This was a collection of his own prayers, his own uh, devotions and meditations as they were, Written by his own hand, roughly in the period from 1909 to 1910 when he was on faculty at Wilberforce University and AME uh, AME HBCU um, and was doing that work there. But trying to merge his social witness with his spiritual concerns and so in that vein, I want to lift up this a prayer for the deed that cries to be done. And those who will, uh, please. Give us grace, O God, to dare to do the deed that we well know cries to be done. Let us not hesitate because of ease or the words of men or women's mouths or our own lives. Mighty causes are calling us the freeing of women, the training of children, the putting down of hate and murder and poverty, all of these and more. But they call with voices that mean work and sacrifice and death. Mercifully grant us, O oh God, the spirit of Esther, that we say, I will go to the king, and if I perish, I perish. And all those who would say, amen. So for the time that we have now, I want to, um, especially given the, the theme that we've defined and, and outlined, you know, this with this emphasis on popular culture, political theology, and public witness, I wanna share some uh, insights that I've gleaned from the life lessons and legacy of W.E.B. Du Bois in ways that I would trouble to um, think would mess with, would, would complicate our standard notions of the sacred and secular, generally speaking, as well as the religious and the politically more specifically. Throughout his life labeled as a radical in so many ways, it's hard to believe nowadays that Du Bois was actually ignored by those who hoped that his massive contributions, his prolific and profound uh, writings would somehow be buried alongside him when he passed away on August 23rd, 1963, the same date as the now legendary March on Washington. But as the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote in tribute to the pioneering scholar and activist, Quote, and I'm quoting here, history cannot ignore W. B. Du Bois because history has to reflect truth and Dr. Du Bois was a tireless explorer and a gifted discoverer of social truths. His singular greatness lay in his quest to, for truth about his own people. They were very, there were very few scholars who concerned themselves with honest study of black people and he sought to fill this immense void. The degree to which he succeeded disclosed the great dimensions of the man. And when I say that Du Bois was and still remains a towering figure, not just in African American intellectual life, but American intellectual life. He's one of the most prolific and I would dare say influential scholars that these American shores have ever yet produced. And I'm standing as a scholar, so you know that's no shame or shade. You know, <laughs> but you always have to have a standard to to look up to, and I think that Du Bois has set the mark very high. Keeping that in mind, this presentation focuses on Du Bois's masterpiece, *The Souls of Black Folk*, wherein he describes a sea change in the evolutionary trajectory of Black faith, culture, and socio-political uh, um, uh, community in America at the dawn of the 20th century. Now, this is standing in the face, as as many of you all will probably know or, or dare to remember. This is at a time when Jim and Jane Crow was was coming barreling down the track and, and taking greater hold of American life. America just recently, some 30 years earlier, had fought, and and we still have yet to reconcile the United States Civil War, um, both in terms of uh the trajectory of reconstruction that that had to follow in the ensuing years, but then also the failure to live up to the promises that we made to, at the time of of emancipation, those 4 million men, women, and children who were enslaved in in the Deep South. But also to all peoples, male, female, native-born, immigrant, rich, poor, who were depending on America to be the, the multiracial, multicultural, multi-ethnic democracy that it could and should be. Right. Du Bois was writing at a time, living in a time where there was a tipping point, that there was a, a decision to be made in these yet to be United States, if I borrow from Maya Angelou, where we could be the world's first true, truly free and fully functioning democratic republic, or we could be the last. Great White Empire. That was the choice that was at hand when Du Bois in 1903 compiled and collected the, the many, roughly 14 uh, essays that form the heart of this book, Souls Black Folk. So despite all these, this whirlwind, this churning of, of problems and, and politics that's going on during this time. Du Bois is is using this volume and he notes that a greater transformation was occurring within the black Christian tradition, what we oftentimes uh, more commonly refer to as the black church. And depending on where where you dwell, it might just be the church, okay, okay. But in his influential chapter of the faith of the fathers, he asserts that by and large, these black churches were shifting and I'm quoting here, into groups of cold, fashionable devotees in no way distinguishable from similar white groups, save in color of skin. Now into large social and business institutions catering to the desire for information and amusement for their members, warily avoiding unpleasant questions, both within and without the black world. Further, in the very next line of of that uh, classic essay, I highly recommend any and everyone uh, check this out. Du Bois proclaims, but back of this still broods silently the deep religious feeling of the real Negro heart, the stirring unguided might of, human, of powerful human souls who have lost the guiding star of the past and are seeking in the great night, a new religious ideal. Okay. Whereas the religious realities and, and political prospects that shaped his worldview at the time are somewhat different from ours today, but I dare argue not too terribly different. I find myself wondering and thinking that those of us who are connected and committed to the black church tradition as part and parcel of global Christianity writ large, we are caught in a similarly tenuous state to the one Du Bois documented over a century ago. Nevertheless, I also wonder what could keep a tireless critic such as Du Bois hopeful that Black believers would overcome this religious identity crisis, thus finding ways to regain social as well as spiritual wholeness that had been long denied to people of African descent since their arrival in the New World so many centuries ago. So when I'm thinking about Du boys, in this regard, what set Du boys apart from many other uh, figures of, of his time of, of note and regard, I'm suggesting is that he's operating in this valence of multiple selves, right? I mean, we're all living through the world, and you know, uh, for some of us, we're, we're hopefully, probably, very familiar with the notion of code switching—the way in which you present to your, your your mother and father is different than the way that you present to your your church folk or or. The, the way you present to the folks in the cafeteria or the grocery store, or the dry cleaner, which hopefully is different from how you present to the folks who are nearest and dearest to you right now, I'm not saying that you, you're going through all these kind of, um, you know, costume changes or, <laughs> or, you know, personality dilemmas. But, you know, sociologists re- refer to this as, I'm thinking about Irvin Goffman and folks like that, the pres- presentation of self, right? how you wanna be perceived, how you want to move through the world, and how you want the world to respond and react to you, bless you, in, in, that, in that fashion. Well, I'm saying in a very similar way, you know, more akin to our time than probably even his own day and time, Du Bois is operating in that kind of mode. So to this point, one facet of his uh, self was the religious scholar as you know, as I was just uh, contending, who developed much of the language and conceptual framework by which we understand religion in America. Specifically, particularly black religion, but all religion, right? Um, Du Bois' work, not only in Souls of Black Folk, but also in that same year in 1903, he was a busy, busy man. Um, He wrote uh, the pioneering volume, The Negro Church, A Social Study, which was the first, if you believe it or not, the first sociological and historical study of churches in America, right? Not just saying, you know, a pastor who was lovingly writing, you know, his, his diary or treatise on their, his church, their church, our church, no, but actually putting social scientific methodology to work on the most sacred institution at that point in American life. But there was also, in my my estimation, the prophetic part of of Du Bois in itself, right? This religious critic who urged black and white churches to incorporate racial fairness, justice, morality, and a critique of the social and political injustice of the larger society into their religious practices and theology. I would dare imagine that, especially in the shadow of Buffalo, in the shadow of Irvine, in the shadow of Uvalde, that Du Bois would wonder, okay, well, for predominantly and historically white churches, what was being preached every Sunday proceeding, but also after those mass shootings? We'll get into that later. There was also Du Bois, the apostate, the religious iconoclast who disregarded traditional religious dogma, just doing religion for religion's sake rather than seeking what is best and greatest about humanity however there was also du bois the and i'm putting this in scare quotes here the pragmatic priest or what i'm talking about in terms of the religious practitioner who as i suggested before he authored prayers he actually uh, wrote and lined hymns for oppressed peoples folks who oftentimes didn't find their way into the Book of Common Prayer, who were often not on the foremost mind of most psalmists or hymnists of the era. And in fact, if if you understand the tradition and the trajectory of black sacred music, right. Aside from the um, the, uh, slave spirituals, right, when The black church became more formally institutionalized, went from invisible institution that uh, Al Raboteau most famously talked about to a visible institution, the kind of work that myself and Dr. Stacy have uh, emphasized and uh, spent much of our career talking about. African American Christians had to import hymns that were not written for about or by them and try to transform and adapt them and give them a new life and a new spirit that otherwise was absent or or vacant. Until thankfully we we developed a a gospel blues tradition which then more more forcefully and formidably expressed a black Christian worldview. But let me not uh, um, digress. And then finally, and most importantly, he was a religious seeker who had very complicated and sometimes even conflicting uh, viewpoints and dimensions to his very being, that he and his virtual heirs, all of us, many of us, must still struggle to reflect upon and reconcile as we move forward into the future. So taking in a gestalt fashion, taking, taking the sum, the, the totality to be greater than any of its individual parts, what I'm suggesting here is that there are many ways that Du Bois is probably better equipped you know, for the spiritual sensibilities and religious realities of our times, rather than the era in which he lived. So I think that that alone begs for greater attention to somebody like this, who oftentimes is seen on the the outskirts rather than at the core of many of our, our thoughts on religion and theology. Okay, so with the remaining time I have this morning, I want to address the complex legacy of Du Bois's views on black faith, culture and politics in three dimensions. First, I wanted to briefly uh, focus on Du Bois' pivotal role in the establishment of black church studies, especially his views on the education of black clergy in America, and I look at this as an issue of profession. Next, I want to examine how Du Bois wrestles with the paradoxical nature of black faith as outlined in the Souls of Black Folk in terms of confession. You know, and as a good Baptist, I got to follow this up. in a threefold fashion. So my third leg is gonna be to discuss Du Bois' development of an African-centered worldview for the redemption of African peoples throughout the diaspora from Eurocentric frameworks as a means of a paradigmatic succession. Pray for me. (laughs) Most definitely, you're welcome. Okay, no worries. No, but I, no, if you need to jot it down, please. But to begin, when I talk about profession as a means of establishing the formal study of the black church tradition, formerly known as the invisible institution of the 19th century into a more visible and viable institution attuned to the modern realities of the then 20th century for all my people born in the 1900s holler. Okay. Hello. Um, Du Bois offers the most cogent examination of African American Christianity's transition from slavery to freedom. In fact, he is, I mean, I don't know how you put a trademark on this, but embedded in the pages of Souls of Black Folk, he actually marks that transitional phrase from slavery to freedom, which then gained new life with the um, Masterful uh, um, uh, study text by John Hope Franklin from Slavery to Freedom, you know, for my history nerds out there. Although his relationship with the black church was often viewed as troubled at best, it was Du Bois' comments and critiques about the church in its totality that generally shaped the perception surrounding the most central, if it is not always the most sacred institution in modern black life. Primarily trained as a historian, Du Bois made his earliest and most prodigious contributions in American social scientific research, particularly on African-American Christianity with this pioneering work, in ways that were deeply indebted to many of the the German sociological uh, giants, such as Max Weber, Wilhelm Dilthey, Emil Durkheim, and uh, other scholars who either directly instructed or influenced Du Bois during his graduate studies at the University of Berlin. By example, In his 1897 essay, The Problem of Amusements, he explains that the black church is, and I quote, a broader, deeper, and more comprehensive social organism than the the churches of white Americans. The black church is not simply an organism for the propagation of religion. It is the center of the social, intellectual, and religious life of an organized group of people. It provides social intercourse It provides amusements of various kinds. It serves as a newspaper and intelligence bureau. It supplants the theater. It directs the picnic and excursion. It furnishes the music. It introduces the stranger to community. It serves as the Lyceum, library, and lecture bureau. It is the central organ of the organized life of African-Americans for amusement, relaxation, instruction, and religion. Some years later, once again, we're revisiting uh, the faith of the fathers. Yes, most definitely. Yes, he events. He offers up uh, um, in of the faith of the fathers, three definitive elements of the black church tradition in America characterized and um, um, it's listed on the screen, but you can follow along with me. Oh, sorry, not only talking about the institutional church in and of itself, but also talking about the preacher, the music and the frenzy. This descriptive three-part typology of the black church's core essence has been hugely influential in the study of black Christianity to date. Moreover, in text, his own texts, right? Not even talking about the, the books that he helped bring, uh, bring into existence, but his own published works, such as the Philadelphia Negro in 1899 and the Negro church I mentioned earlier Du Bois offers many astute insights concerning the political, cultural, and economic impact of the black church as a social institution using theories and methods that were still uncommon within the American Academy. In this sense, it can easily be argued that Du Bois' landmark historical and sociological research on the African American church greatly contributed to the setting the standard for the social scientific study of religion in the American scene. Especially interesting for me, and hopefully to you as well, is Du Bois' emphasis on the distinctive role of the Black preacher within the African-American community. Towards this end, Du Bois described the African-American preacher as, quoting, the most unique personality developed by the Negro on American soil, and further notes that the Black preacher early appeared on the plantation and found his or her function as the healer of the sick, the interpreter of the unknown, the comforter of the sorrowing, the supernatural avenger of wrong and the one who rudely but picturesquely expressed the longing, disappointment and resentment of a stolen oppressed people. Thus, as bard, position, judge and priest within the narrow limits allowed by the slave system, rose the Negro preacher and under him and her, the first Afro American institution, the Negro church. To his credit, it should be noted that Du Bois was not above criticizing black ministers for their shortcomings. For instance, during the 1898 commencement speech at his undergraduate alma mater, Fisk University, down in Nashville, Du Bois states, what we need is not more, but fewer ministers. But in that lesser number, we certainly need earnest, broad and cultured people, people who do a great good deal more than they say. The severest charge that they can, can be brought against the Christian education of the Negro in the South during the last 30 years is the reckless way in which sap-headed young people <laughs> I'm being kind here without ability, and in some cases without character, have been urged into ministry. It is time to now to halt. It is time now to say to these young people like you, qualifications that would be of no service elsewhere are not needed in the church. Rather than, I mean, he's straight no chaser. He was not, he's not one to play with. Rather than being dismissive or dysfunctional, the fact that Du Bois could extol the virtues as well as the vices of the black church and especially its leadership was a precious act of scholarly engagement with the black church tradition, which unfortunately has bitten too few and far between. As has been argued elsewhere, This rift has largely resulted from black intellectuals who despise the church's anti-intellectualism and conservative social outlook, while conversely, countless black churchgoers who have been victimized by self-alienated academic elitism on one side and thin theological teaching by lazy parasites parading as pastors on the other. Now that's me, that's not the boys, but okay. But I learned from the best. Okay, um, even though, Even though it can easily be argued that Du Bois did not walk the fine line between the academy and the church perfectly or precisely, his attempts to fuse the sacred and secular within the arena of modern black life should be considered in many more meaningful ways for the future. Furthermore, I also hear faint and early echoes of Du Bois' talented 10th argument, right? And for those of you all unfamiliar with the souls of black folk, he makes a, a, a very pointed concern about the training and preparation of African-Americans in that lauded transition from slavery to freedom and the necessity that to build a black middle class, higher education is vitally necessary. And he's lifting up this talented 10th, but not saying it in this kind of rarefied uh, mode of exceptionalism equaling excellence, Right? He's not saying that the Talented Tenth should be exclusive. He's not saying that, and you know, um, folks who know, they know what I'm talking about in terms of um, being adorned and, and anointed and appointed to certain uh, rare uh, social organizations, sororities, fraternities, um, you know, getting all puffed up about their their status, the cars they drive, the the dwellings in which they live, the, you know, The clout that comes with their bank account? No. That talented tenth wasn't supposed to be a a, a city on a hill, so to speak. He was claiming that as a radical remnant. Du Bois was making the the concerted argument that if, if the black community, such as it was then and now, was ever going to survive, even one tenth of the population who could be honed into the leading edge of black America, right? To then go back, right? As a, a exercise in Sankofa, go back, return to the communities from which we come and re, recommit ourselves to that, reinvest in that, strengthen and renew those spaces and places that we come from so that we can acknowledge that all of God's earth and all the people on God's earth are God's property, okay? But also attached to this, most particularly, I hear in, in Du Bois's writings and, and uh, um, speeches, I hear it when he strives to emphasize the quality, and I'm emphasizing this, the quality of individuals being prepared for prophetic and pastoral ministry in a desperately needful society, and not simply the quantity of people running around calling themselves apostle, elder, prophet, bishop, or some other lofty likewise title, simply out of the desire for a luxurious lifestyle or a luminous uh, social media feed. That being the case, I would hope that we could I- interpret Du Bois' critique as more being more concerned with increasing the pool of truly talented and dedicated religious leadership and not simply keeping the circle of preachers as, as a hermetically sealed uh, entity, and also an expanding carnival of for, fortune hunters and fame seekers who consider doing God's work as just another hustle and God's people as ready victims ripe for the picking. But let's move on. Okay. Next, the act of confession in Du Bois's writing becomes clearer when viewed considering how he wrestles with what I call the unbearable burden of souls. It's impossible to talk about W. B. Du Bois, at least at this time, and not mention the primacy of Souls of Black Folk, both as a masterpiece in its own right of scholarly writing in the 20th century and as a centerpiece of Du Bois' own evolving body of of work and research. Du Boisian concepts such as double consciousness, I'll I'll mention that soon, uh, the talented 10th, which I was just talking about, the problem of the color line, the veil and so many others so thoroughly dominate the ontological conversations of race and racism in the modern world that that even in rejecting or ignoring them, one still finds oneself caught within the matrix of ideas that Du Bois himself articulated more than 100 years ago. What is most fascinating to me is that this regard in how Du Bois provides crit- critical perspectives into black sacred realities is in so many ways deceptively subtle. First and foremost, the very use of souls as a central motif throughout the book is a vitally important example. Because of the ubiquity of soul, especially in African-American life and culture, as a reference to cuisine, music, in terms of fictive kin, soul sister, soul, brother, right? As a semiotic modifier, soul train, right? Okay, and I could go on and on. No, I will not. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. I take counsel very well and wisely. We, we tend to underestimate the revolutionary stake involved in any black person, especially in that moment, that crisis of Jim and Jane Crow segregation and white racial terrorism that was emerging at the time that he wrote this book, to dare openly declare to a world deeply entrenched in white supremacy that, yes, black folks, did indeed, do indeed have souls. That was a radical act, okay? In his reflections on this text, uh, theologian Anthony Penn suggests that throughout the book, Du Bois offers, and I'm quoting here, a soft assertion that black bodies have weight or soul that is not fully accounted for through talk of the existential dimensions of race and race relations. It is through this soul, the inner and more opaque dimensions of life, that the creative impulse for fullness of being is developed and nurtured and imposed notions of meaning do not penetrate to this level of existence, end quote. It's precisely this opaque internality to which Pin refers I myself would call it more the meaningful messiness of of black humanity, that Du Bois unfolds in the pages of souls which has made the book a timeless and venerated classic. Yet while Penn asserts that the souls of black folks illustrates a a hermeneutic sealed in an aesthetic of black embodiment, I would contend that it is the realm of the ethereal that Du Boisian analysis truly excels. As a Bois' favorite professor and eventual advisor during his doctoral studies at Harvard, the influence of the psychologist and philosopher William James looms large uh, throughout much of Souls, but most especially regarding religiosity, as it would uh, later be proven and manifest in uh, James's own work, *The Varieties of, of Religious Experience*, which was published a year earlier in 1902. Charting James's impact on Boise's thinking is helpful here because to the end of revisiting James's own definition of religion as quote, the feelings, acts, and experiences of individuals in their solitude so far as they apprehend themselves to stand in relation to whatever they may consider the divine. Throughout many of Souls of Black Folks chapters, it seems that Du Bois adapts and incorporates James's definition of religion within his own take on on religion very much to heart but it is that personal intangible connection between the human and divine that initially appears absent from his treatment on black faith. As the boys unfold his insights on black life and experience throughout this slim volume, it captures one's attention how he clusters his discussion of black religion for the last four chapters of the book. The detached objectivity and scholarly passivity towards the African American religious experience incumbent within his seamless merger of theory and method seems most obvious in chapters such as of the faith of the fathers that I mentioned earlier, of Alexander Crummell, that notable uh, black Episcopalian uh, figure and intellectual and of the sorrow songs where uh, um, Du Bois does a deep dive into the origins and evolutions of those spirituals, uh, those 200 songs by uh, anonymous songwriters who were enslaved. The lone exception in this case is a chapter entitled of the, pa- of the passing of the firstborn. Now, when I first read this book many years ago, I wondered why this chapter was even included in the book. In recent years, however, I've been increasingly convinced that it is the of the passing of the firstborn in which Du Bois finally taps into the core concerns of black faith in its most extreme sense. When confronted by the death of their firstborn son, Berghard Du Bois, W. B. Du Bois and his wife, Nina, sadly approach what one writer has called the dark night of the soul, wherein they face the supreme moment of deep crisis and most intimate heartache. This young black couple found themselves becoming a different type of tertium quid, or or, to translate it out of the Latin, a, a what's that, a third thing, right? They became childless parents, a concept so devastating that the English language still does not have a singular word that's suitable to describe such a phenomenon, which now in our own time is becoming too prevalent. Yet, and yet, I think this act of bearing witness about the death of of their son complicates what the historian of religion Charles Long's notion about Du Bois had come into an understanding of self and sacred via his immersion and commitment to community. I would insist the opposite, however, by illustrating that the death of their son, possibly the most intensely personal and intimate trauma of Du Bois' life was a motivating force that helped him better understand the insurmountable burden of black pain and suffering, as well as the incomprehensible capacity of black people's hope in the face of despair as enduring dimensions of the overall human condition. Thus, whereas Long's brief assessment of Du Bois is true in part, Long was still regarding Du Bois as intellectual and not as an individual, thus creating a conceptual blind spot, if you will, that did not allow him to fully appreciate Du Bois' act of self-revelation and self-disclosure. Having read and reread this book more than three decades since I was a student down the road at Rutgers College, I have wrestled with this chapter against the backdrop of the crack wars. The HIV AIDS crisis, the rise of Black Lives Matters, the opioid crisis, the, the trauma brought on by Hurricane Katrina, rampant mass shootings, the multiple threats to human longevity precipitated by structural inequality and transgender transgenerational poverty, and most recently, the ravages of COVID-19 pandemic, which in turn helped me begin rethinking my own hermeneutic. Meanwhile, my own aging process, thanks be to God, which has blessed me to become a husband and a father while also becoming quite literally a motherless child, now enabled me to empathize more closely with the boys in ways that I was not yet mature or secure enough in my earlier years. Through that gradually emergent process of, and I'm quoting here from the culture having gone through some things and seen some things, I now had to reckon with the work of processing the trauma, grief, and death occasioned by losses heightened by, but not isolated to the pandemic. Unprocessed, unspoken, unreconciled grieving remains in the background of many of our faith communities, and we are. In desperate need of ways to articulate that vast tsunami of mourning before it tears us all apart, not only from each other, but even from our own selves. Okay, well, thank you. In dealing with the tragic death of their only begotten son, Du Bois reveals the paradoxical nature of black faith as a bittersweet tension between dread and desire, the painful dread of a precious little life lost before it's time and the urgent desire that the baby might find some great solace and sweet reward in a realm other than ours. Thus to my own mind. If Du Bois was such a stalwart voice of black secular modernism, most surely his yearning for the existence of God, herein identified by Du Bois as all love and echoes of an all abiding resilient faith in the face of unyielding agony and woe that is present throughout this chapter and I dare argue throughout this world, surely would not exist. Hence, in many ways, This seemingly anecdotal departure from his more deliberate analysis of modern Black religious life and culture, herein called The Passing of the Firstborn, in which we have a window into Du Bois' own soul, and ironically, find the most transcendent and revelant offering of Black faith in the entire volume. Finally, I think Du Bois' greatest challenge to our conjoined notion of Black faith, politics, culture, and history comes in the form of succession, wherein Du Bois initiates a paradigm shift which ushers forth new and divergent worldviews while forcing older systems to recede. The most fruitful and expedient illustration of this process is found in Du Bois's devotion to dismantling the white supremacist legacy of philosopher George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. We'll just call him Hegel, just too much of a mouthful for me this morning. In the early 1830s, when asked to discuss the role of Africa within the historical development of civilizations in his legendary lectures on world history, Hegel states, at this point we leave Africa, not to mention it again, For it is no historical part of the world is has no movement or development to exhibit historical movements in in it that is in its northern part belong to the Asiatic or European world egypt will be considered in reference to the passage of the human mind from its eastern to its western space but it does not belong to the african spirit we what we properly understand by africa is the unhistorical undeveloped spirit still involved in the conditions of mere nature and which had to be presented here only as on the threshold of the world's history In one fell swoop, Hegel's penultimate act of revisionist history radically recreates Africans and their diasporan counterparts as quote unquote people without history, to borrow anthropologist Eric Wolf's phraseology. In In order to understand why any of this matters, one has to appreciate that the need to rethink Hegel is not just an empty intellectual exercise. The openly racist disregard demonstrated by Hegel's statement demonstrates systemic as well as systematic anti-black racism woven into much of Western philosophy since the Enlightenment. Right? So, for instance, just to take a brief pause for the cause. Here we see the Sphinx, the, one of the great wonders of the world You know, with the backdrop of the pyramids of Giza behind it. Now, what's fascinating about this is twofold. First. The nose of the Sphinx. Does anybody know what happened to the nose?
1: This is where it gets interactive, though. Is it on vacation? Like, it...
0: <laughs> right, right, when Napoleon and, and uh, his French army come to town, right, you know, they're like, hey, that's a big target. Let's take a let's take a crack at it. See how these cannons work, right? There, There's that argument that that claim, right? I don't think that the folks who could great, create such grand structures somehow, you know, they could build the entire Sphinx, but somehow their technology around the nose would, would you know, somehow come up short and it would just fall off by, by itself. There's an argument to be made that um, there was a concerted effort by the French, who, who invaded uh, Egypt and wanted to claim it as part of their, their growing empire, that in order to demolish the facial features and any kind of distinctive recognition that would have this, this great monument be more African than European in its, in its visage, in its uh, visible appearance, right? That was a form of power. It was a rewriting of history in the way that we can appreciate in terms of what happens when people battle over monuments. I don't know, Civil War generals or, you know, folks that, so, you know, New World conquerors, anyway. Additionally, using a Hegelian perspective, one is compelled to view our concepts of religion, history, philosophy, and culture as being interwoven and tightly bound together. As such, any attempt to draw, tie in, and distance oneself from Hegel's racist dismissal in the realm of religion leads us, leads any of us, to run right smack into it elsewhere within an interlocking system of thought, being, and doing, that comprises the essential nature of modern life. Taken to another level, even though every major philosophical movement of the past half century at least, ranging from phenomenology and analytic philosophy to existentialism and poststructuralism has marked itself its existence by attacking Hegelianism, this still establishes his particular worldview as a necessary point of departure and definition. Therefore, the establishment of a more African-centered perspective that would supplant this Hegelian system of thought, Du Bois offers had no alternative but to tackle this head on. But yet there's one great problem here. So even when we look at these scenes, and I'm sorry to to have to force force us to pay attention to this this early in the day, but when you have the situation of Dylan Roof, the the shooter at the um, Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, uh, South Carolina in 2015, or the young men who were gathered at the Unite the Right rally slash riot in Charlottesville, Virginia, in August of 2017, right? This belies so many of the notions that white supremacy was a thing of the past, or it was only, you know, the older generation, and but the new generation, the millennials, and Gen Y and Z, and whatever the next generation is gonna be named and claimed as, right? Oh, they get it. They've, they've grown up in a better way. Hmm? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The touchscreen Sesame Street generation, right? They, they they, play well with others now, like it's all good. This is a painful reminder that the ghost of Hegel still looms large, okay? But even in talking about that ghost, I wanna also lift up uh, Shortly and briefly, the fact that Du Bois himself was deeply indebted to Hegel, right? As I mentioned before, he'd gone to Germany. He fell in love with the philosophical frameworks that, that Hegel, uh, Hegel offered in terms of the Hegelian dialectic, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Right? Could he live and, excuse me? Right, right. And, and uh, Du Bois is a devoted Marxist as well. Yeah. So much of how we operate in the modern world is, as I'm suggesting, informed by this. So speaking of the history of the Negro, right, just to use this as an example, Du Bois contends that, and I'm quoting here, the history of this strife, this longing to attain self-consciousness, personhood, to merge one's double self into a better, truer self in this merging of the Black person would not Africanize America, for America has too much to teach the world in Africa. The black person would not bleach his or her own Negro soul in a flood of white Americanism before he or she knows that the Negro blood has a message for the world. Black people want to be both Negro and American without being cursed and spit upon by their fellows, without having the doors of opportunity closed roughly in their faces. This is him wrestling with that ghostly presence, that ghostly demon of of the divided soul. Now, in an interesting kind of way, part of, I'm sorry, this got cut off, but we've had in recent uh, months and and years this debate about cancel culture and a history in which if we go from the very origins of of, uh, the new world some people call it exploration, I dare call it exploitation. But constantly a narrative of the conquistadors right telling the indigenous peoples of, of this continent, right, that this is not your land. To the puritans, you know, those folks who, you know, landed on Plymouth Rock and then, you know, picked up Plymouth Rock and tried to crush other people's heads with it, right? Daring to tell women and religious leadership and authority that they had no right to speak their truth, a divinely inspired truth. Slave masters, slave traders, slave drivers who dared tell folks of African and soon to be American descent that freedom was not theirs. It was not theirs to have or hold. It's a little more than 60, 70 years ago when folks who were trying to live their lives in the LGBTQ community, were being told that they were pathological, that they were diseased and defective human beings, by the academy, by by medical science. To once again, because you know, you know, some hits just keep coming back, right? Now in an age of segregation being told that people of color could never ever claim access or opportunity in spaces and places like Princeton Theological Seminary. But then finally we come all the way now to full circle where those folks who've helped write the history are now saying that they're being silenced, canceled, ignored, right? Not as if they don't have engines and organs of of, uh, mass communication, talking to you Fox News, Right. I don't know how millionaires and billionaires who have satellites, video, uh, um, <laughs> video streaming services or whatever somehow find themselves, you know, left without a platform. Okay, but I'll, I'll leave that alone. As I, I come to a close, I find this to be an interesting uh, um, moment we're living in. Uh, the hip hop artist uh, Kendrick Lamar recently has uh, um, put forth this album, Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers. And I think, interestingly enough, uh, he's captured, especially for many folks in his age group as uh, millennial folks who um, also gravitate towards uh, hip hop, You know, not only Grammy award-winning, but Pulitzer Prize-winning, uh, um, uh, Kendrick Lamar, uh, um, a spokes, I think a spokesperson for a generation. He captures so, so much of this bitter conflict in a bold, and I think somewhat gut-wrenching uh, poignancy. Lamar gets to the core essence of what du-, uh, du Bois called double consciousness when he defines, I'm talking about Du Bois here, a peculiar sensation, the sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. One ever feels a two ness, an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body. Double consciousness describes both then and now, so many centuries between them, struggles of so many millions of of African people who have journeyed from chattel slavery and colonization to racial segregation to the present conditions of quasi-freedom and yet facing things like mass incarceration and white supremacist terror. Framed by the hope and change once promised by two-term presidency of Barack Obama on the one hand, and the rise of Black Lives Matters protests on the other. The renowned uh, author, Tanahasi Coates, frames this particularly desperate dilemma this way: How do I live free in this black body? As if channeling these questions into a fine musical and metaphysical melange, Lamar embraces aspects of Du Bois' critical analysis on faith, culture, and social action within the deeply contemplative and unflinchingly introspective new album, which is evenly divided between the big steppers, uh, the moral corruption of of the culture. Um, For those of you all not keyed into hip-hop vernacular or vocabulary, steppers are, in fact, uh, um, they're shooters. They're, they're, um, They're armed gunmen. Right? They're the folks who do violence either for their own sake or on behalf of the, the gangs or, or the other entities that they're attached to. He juxtaposes that lifestyle, that reality, with Mr. Morale, right, the moral clarity of a Christian consciousness. Right? Though I do wrong, I know that there is, quote unquote, the right way to be, the right way to live, the right thing to do, which will win out. And how, how do you live righteous in a world that rewards, not just permits, but rewards our worst behavior? I think he does this in a way that uh, even uh, someone who's uh, typically very stodgy like Dr. Du Bois would, would celebrate and, and uh, commend. So as I wrap up, as I end, while Du Bois writes this and many other statements with a sort of dramatic pose that prose, that one might only get away with in the full bloom of his or her youthful exuberance and self-assuredness. It must also be recognized that these words about double consciousness and and combating the evils, the ghosts of, of Hegel were written in a context in which the dominant political, economic and cultural and religious worldviews and systems of his time were very much imposed upon the darker peoples and nations around the globe. We're all built atop the monumental lie that people of African descent lack both history and humanity. But thankfully, during his exceptionally long and productive lifetime, Du Bois left a plethora of interpretive resources pertaining to the study of Af- the African diaspora that could allow us to imagine the possibility of, in my own reimagining of Audre Lorde's words, using the master's tools to dismantle the master's house, or better yet, helping us to build our own. Thank you. So in the like five nanoseconds we have left. if we got any uh, um, compl- yes, please come through. come forth
1: hmm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mhm.
0: Mhm. Mhm. But here's the thing. And I, I totally and absolutely concur with uh, what you're dealing with. So many of us, and I, I, I touched on this a little bit on yesterday, right? Can we separate the creation from the creator, right? Ought we? How can we uh, keep the baby and toss out the bathwater, so to speak? Part of what we have to grapple with is that even as individuals, or individuals as part of institutions, right? There is much that we have to reckon with, right? We we can't just have the concentrated benefits of the thing and not deal with the diffuse burdens or or, or baggage of that thing. Right? I think about uh, Phyllis Tribble, right? She, for those of y'all should know, right? Texts of terror, right? She takes us through the Bible, especially these passages and um you know just a a, a shout out to uh, our preacher for the evening uh jeanette you're gonna lift up a, a a kind of treacherous or 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 you know thorny text right the Bible is littered with these things, but do we tear up throw away toss toss the Bible away no you have to interrogate that, right? There are many texts, right? I don't go to uh, most churches any Sunday morning to hear folks preaching from Philemon, right? Right, you know, you know, nobody, you know, most, especially if a pastor's trying to raise a, a healthy offering or, or trying to get, you know, more folks to come down the aisle, right? You know, this is not a text you you drag out, right? A lot of people are submitting to Or living, or going through it, yeah, yeah. And that's the problem, right? So the issue is, if we want to just, you know, look a or look the other way, or or just, you know, kind of say mum's the word about the awfulness or or the problematic issue that's embedded in these theories and approaches that we use, these texts that we depend on, right? You know, hopefully the Bible isn't just work-related reading material for y'all, but it's like it's actually something, you know, it's actually a resource and and a a, a tool for daily living as well, right? Okay. All right. Wow. Good to be in the room. Okay. All right. okay. But the idea that, the idea that, okay, well, yeah, Hegel had some awful ideas, but, you know, I can just hold my nose and, you know, you know, just power through this. For each and every generation, right? Who's comes fresh and new to this much like each and every you know new soul that you're bringing to christ right you're going to have to talk to them and help them negotiate and navigate right this text there, there's painful stuff here i give you another prime example and then i'll, I'll um I'll let's do what we have to do all of y'all know i'm i'm hoping fingers crossed all of y'all know right after the sermon on the mount what is the miracle that jesus performs besides you know, just getting through the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so, right, feeding the multitude, there you go, right? But in most translations, you know, I'm a little rusty, you know, I'm not a biblicist, but you know, I play one on TV, okay? In most translations it says, Jesus fed the multitude some 5,000, not counting women and children, okay? So just take, take that into our, our spirits here, right? The greatest miracle performed in the New Testament. Now, I can also make the argument that maybe the miracle wasn't just this this magical transubstantiation of Jesus, you know, making fish sandwiches out of thin air, you know, fish and loaves, right? Like oh, fish sandwich. Okay, let's just, you know, <laughs> the physics of our time, right? <laughs> right? Maybe it wasn't that, but maybe it was the fact that taking the the, the portion of food from this little child and the child giving. All that the child had, in, in an earnest and honest offering, actually got some grown folk to give up what they had, and it, maybe that's a miracle, and that truly can be, you know, a, a greater form of alchemy than you know making something out of nothing. Okay, back to the matter at hand: the fact that this, the scribes, the fact that the folks who were transcribing and translating Jesus's life, lessons, and legacy in real time exempted at least half of the population because the women and the children didn't count literally and figuratively right what am i to do with that how much greater could that act at least in it's it's still a miracle have no doubt but how much greater if we talk to and wrestle with okay the misinterpretation and the malintent that happened at that time right How can we salvage the beauty of this thing while removing or or, uh, um, reacting, responding righteously and rightfully to the problems of it, right? So yeah, call Hegel out, call Marx out, right? Call the boys out, right? I'm not trying to lift up one hero to take down a new hero, but saying, okay, we need folks to tell the gospel truth, right, that's the whole point of this, All right, but thank you. No, no worries, thank you.